you find yourself yearning for a deeper, more purposeful existence? Get ready to embark on a transformative journey, diving deep into the realms of personal development, friendships, romance, and abundance. Get ready for Finding the Fire, Igniting Soul Connection, as we lead the way to embrace the fire within. Oh my goodness. Um... I love the finds that you never know what's going to happen in your day. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, what are we talking about today, Holly? Well, on our way here today, it sounds like we've kind of just been talking about some of your near-death experiences and and just kind of how everything brought you to different things in your life now. So you think you kind of want to share some of that? <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I can share some of that. Um and that that is a like a hot topic and a broad subject of how I got here from from there. But um, yeah, just just life experiences and and looking back over over the years and over all the all the different experiences, which is crazy. Like most people don't even have one near death experience, right? And I've had multiple multiple uh, multiple that are documented in the hospital, and then some as well that were not. But um, yeah, so just uh, in you know going from like and also going from like Western medicine and like what my belief system was like growing up religious and you know th- what we're taught is is life after death or what's going to happen in this life and the next life and um, knowing the science and physiology of everything and then and then you go through your own experience and it's like whoa that was so much more and deeper and whatever than than you could ever even expect right and you can't deny when you go through those experiences what you experience in them right right and it it's very interesting because i have i have a brother who's atheist and so um to talk to him and like he's like well you know everybody has a similar experience and so i just look at it as like a hallucination and i'm like but everybody's having the same hallucination like how does that make sense you know um but anyway so so he's kind of fun and interesting to talk to and because he's never experienced anything you know anything outside of this physical and he's very science minded and and that's okay but it's also like made me think and and have to have different words and different conversations around my experience that I can relate relate to other people and and I think you know being a nurse and western medicine minded and then also like growing up religious and leaving religion like it's given me like a kind of a a broad uh, perspective on things. Um, yeah. But having said that, like, I'll just, and it's interesting because the more of my, you know, you, you get a little bit of PTSD and, com- and compartmentalize things as they happen and you don't remember all of them or you don't remember the depth of the experiences sometimes because it's traumatizing, right? Just like, you know, anybody else that experiences PTSD for whatever other traumas they go through, whether it's a war or, you know, sexual violation or, you know, whatever, you kind of like push, push a lot of the memory aside. But the more I talk about it and the more I share the, the more of the memory that opens up and, um, but so, so when I'm like, Oh, what was my first near death experience? Honestly, like, I can't like in this very moment, I would take me a minute to tune in, but I'm, I'm pulling up, I'm pulling up one right now that I'll share. And, um, I was, let's see. So I, 
um, had graduated nursing school. I was working in the newborn ICU and my husband had also just graduated. He, he had graduated about a year and a half after I did. But so I was a couple more years in, um, than he was, but he was also a nurse and he was working in surgery. I had worked in surgery for seven years prior to, uh, moving to NICU, um, as a OR tech and different, different roles in there. Um, so this one day I go to bed and I've had like lots of back pain. I've had back pain since, uh, since I was 19, I was in a car accident with a friend on her way to work to the hospital, ironically. And, um, so I just had always had back pain since then and just kind of dealt with it and coming and going different levels. And, um, sometimes it was more prominent than others. I was going to, you know, getting like steroid injections in my back and, any, you know, like they, they severed the nerves at times in my back, just different things over the years to, to try and alleviate the pain. And so I'd have different levels of pain. Um, but I just dealt with, it It was just kind of like a life, you know, like something to deal with in life at that point. So one day I'm going to, to bed and like my back starts hurting, but it's a little more painful than normal. And I'm like, Oh, that's odd. Well, I'll just go to sleep and it'll probably be fine in the morning. Cause sometimes I can sleep off that. Um, but it got more prominent and more prominent. I'm like, Oh, this is, this is really uncomfortable, you know? So I'm like, okay, maybe I'll take some ibuprofen and, and the pain just like shot up excruciatingly, like very quickly. My husband was asleep at that point. Um, and so I went and got in the shower, like got, took a really, really, really hot shower, just as hot as I could to like numb the pain. And I, I knew something was wrong at that point. I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what. And being a nurse and being stubborn, like you never want to, like, there's a joke about nurses. Like if your mom's a nurse and you have a broken ankle, you're walking on that broken ankle for three weeks before she finally admits like, oh, maybe you need to go in. Right. So, so that's kind of a joke, but it's kind of true. So here I am in this excruciating pain. I know something's wrong, but I don't want to believe it. So, so what do I do? Instead of waking up my husband and admitting like something's wrong, I call a friend at work who's also a nurse and, and she's a good friend. I'm like, I don't know what's wrong. I'm in all this pain. And she's like, Cindy, you need to get to the hospital. And that was the last thing I had control over. So I passed out in the shower. Um, that noise woke my husband up. He drugged me out of the shower and the phone's still on. And so he picks it up to see who's there. It's my friend. She's like, get her to the hospital. He takes me to the hospital. Um, and I'm, I'm not able to respond. I can, I'm aware of what's going on, but I'm not able to respond. And, um, so <laughs> if anybody's had an experience in the ER, like there's a lot of people that share similar stories. Like you go in the ER and unless you have, an obvious like limb hanging off or blood coming from somewhere. If you're there for, for pain or anything else, and then they kind of look at you as like, you know, maybe they're here like a drug seeker or something, you know, and here I am wet, <laughs> wet looking dog just out of the shower. He threw like his pajamas on me cause just to throw something on me and I'm slumped over. So, so as a nurse, like I know what that looks like, it looks like some, probably somebody who's overdosed or something. So they treated me as such. And, um, he, 
he's like, can we get a blood pressure on her? Like, he's very worried and he's a nurse. They don't know who we are. Mind you, we work at that hospital, but the hospital's huge. He works in surgery. I work in NICU. There's two campuses at that point. Um, and um, this is in the ER and uh, on the opposite campus of where we worked. And um, so the guy's like, yeah, yeah, I'll get to it. And he's like asking me the intake questions and I can't respond. I can hear him, but I can't respond. And so my husband's responding to him and he's like, no, I'm asking her and I'm trying to respond. I can't say anything, but somehow I'm able to barely lift my hand and kind of point towards my husband. And so then he starts listening to him and getting my name and all that from him. And my husband's like begging him, can we put a blood pressure cuff on her? Like we need to take a blood pressure on her. And he's like, I'll get to it. And finally they put a blood pressure cuff on me and realize I have like no blood pressure. Like they can't get a reading on me. And so then they, you know, rush me back in and, um, call in a whole code team. And at that point it was like, I had gone from this excruciating pain to not feeling pain. Um, I couldn't respond. I was aware, but the pain was gone and that's all I really cared about. And, you know, and as a nurse, I'm like, okay, I'm in a hospital now. They'll figure it out. They'll take care of me, whatever this pain is, you know? Um, and what I didn't realize at the time was um, they were coding me in the ER. And all I knew was there was a bunch of people moving around and all of a sudden I would be back in my body and screaming in this excruciating pain. And so as they're coding me and trying to pull me back to life, quite literally, as I'm getting in my body, it's so painful. It's I'm just screaming like horribly. And then I would leave my body again and, um, and the pain would go and, um, whew. <laughs> so, um, you know, a lot of people, they'll share stories and I have different stories that are, are this way, but people share stories where they're like hovering above and like looking down at themselves being worked on. It wasn't like that for me in this instance. This instance, I was actually up at the top of the ceiling looking at the ceiling and it's black, um, but I'm not in my body and I'm aware of everything going around me, but I can't see what's going on. I can't respond. But every time they like got me back in my body, I, again, I'd just be in this pain and just screaming. And about the third time that happened, I'm like, just kill me. Like when I got back in my body, I'm screaming, just kill me. Wow. Because the pain was so bad. I would rather die than be in that body in that moment. And, and yet, and this is the, the crazy thing too. Like I still have the awareness and as a nurse and doing rotations in the ER and, you know, you'd talk about all the druggies and all the weird people and like, oh yeah, that crazy person down there. Like I'm witnessing myself as the, through the nurse's eyes as a patient, I'm like, oh, that person's got to be crazy because here she is screaming, just kill me. Right. And so it's kind of like this weird, surreal situation going on. Um, and, uh, so finally, they're able to get the pain down enough to when they brought me back into my body, it wasn't as excruciating and I was able to stay. And, um, and then, you know, the code team kind of died down and, and some of them left the room and, um, 
and I'm left there with the doctor and I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'm out of pain now. So what's wrong? We don't know what's wrong. I'm like, oh, okay, well, you got the pain under control. You don't know what's wrong. Like, see you later. Yeah. <laughs> Which sounds so silly now looking back, but like that was how I was thinking, you know, I'm like, well, I'm not in pain anymore. You don't know what's wrong. I'm out of here. Right. Cause ER is literally like a life saving life or death or, you know, this is what's wrong or take two of these and call your doctor in the morning type situation. Right. And they're telling me they didn't know what was wrong with me. And at that point, like they had done. So after they were able to stabilize me, um, they had, uh, sent me off to get, um, uh, MRIs and CT scans and to, to try and see what's going on. And they couldn't find anything. Um, but they assumed like maybe I had had like a ruptured appendix because that's excruciating. It's painful. And, um, you can't like see that on lab work necessarily. Right. So they're doing all these scans, trying to figure out what's going on and they don't find anything, but they're like, well, she's got to have something internally going on to be in that much pain and to literally be dying on us. And so if it's like a ruptured appendix or something like we need emergency surgery to get that out of her because then she'll go into sepsis and die. Right. That's what they're thinking. I'm not thinking any of that at that time. You know, I'm just grateful to be alive and not in pain. And so they're like, oh, OK, we're sending you off to surgery and I'm like, why? You know, you don't even know what's wrong. Well, we don't know what's wrong, but something's wrong. And and if we don't figure it out, like, you're not going to survive this. So I'm like, okay. And this is where it gets this is where it gets really crazy and silly. Like I I mentioned, I worked in surgery for seven years um, prior to moving to NICU. So I knew all the surgeons, knew all the nurses. I knew everybody there. They're all my friends. You know, and you also have favorites, right? You have favorite doctors. You have favorite nurses. So. Part of my job when I worked in surgery was to put the crews together. And so in my head, I'm like, well, I'm going to pick my crew then if I'm going to have right. surgery, right? And so I, like, call up to to the OR circulator and I'm like, hey, so-and-so, it's me. And guess what? I'm coming in for surgery. And who's on today? And, like, trying to, like, pick my crew. And I know this just sounds crazy at this point. But so she's telling me who's on. And I'm like, and you know, they're all good. They're all good. But you have your favorites, you know, that you have fun with working together. So, um, but she mentioned, so I'm like, well, who's the general surgeons? Because, you know, whoever the general surgeons are is going to do my surgery. Well, in my head, like I want any of the general surgeons, but this one, because he's the grumpy old man, right? In my head. And so I'm like, any of them would be great, but not this one. Well, it was this one. And they're like, well, I'm going to try and get so-and-so. I'll go talk to so-and-so and see if they'll do you, do your surgery. And and they're like, yeah, we got it all arranged. But but they're like, there's no time to wait. Like, I was that critical. But in, you know, not being logical <laughs> for myself, I'm, like, thinking, like, I can just make all this happen the way I want it to. And so that other surgeon had been like, yeah, sure, I can do the surgery, but I have to finish what I'm doing first, obviously on that surgery. And this other one was available now. And so the ER doc's like, you're not waiting for anybody. You're going now. And so I'm kind of frustrated about that, but I'm like, okay, whatever, Cindy, just let it be. It's how it's meant to be. Right. So they're wheeling me back to surgery and this surgeon stops them in the hallway. He had looked over all my labs, over all my scans and he stopped them. And he's like, we're not taking her into surgery. And they're like, what do you mean? Like she needs surgery or she'll die. He's like, she'll die if she goes into surgery. There is nothing operable in her. He's like, I've looked over everything. 
He's like, if we open her up, she will die. She's not going into surgery. Uh, and in that moment, I'm like, like, not maybe not even in that moment, but looking back, I'm like, holy shit, had it been any of those other surgeons and they're my friends and they're like, yeah, I got to, you know, like they would have taken me back and opened me up. Right. And there was nothing to operate on and my body could not have handled it. And so thank God it was the one grumpy old guy who knew a lot more than the young fun guys to work with, right? And stopped them from taking me into surgery and instead directed me straight to ICU. And even at that point, I'm like, why am I going to ICU? I'm fine, right? Because like, I'm not in pain now. I'm aware. I can talk. I'm, I'm able to answer my own questions. My husband doesn't have to answer them for me or carry me, you know? So I'm like, I, I don't need to go to ICU. They're like, do you understand the pressors that you're on, the medications you're on to keep you alive right now. And that's the first time I turned around and looked at the IV pole behind me. And it was a Christmas tree of medications that they were pumping into my body to keep me here on this earth. And I was just like, whoa. Okay. Wow. <laughs> and that was the first time it really, the gravity of it really hit me. I'm like, what's, what's going on here? You know, <laughs> like, so they take me into ICU and, um, the, the internist there comes in and he starts asking me all these questions, you know, just running down, trying to figure out what's going on. And he's like, have you been on any antibiotics lately? I'm like, no, no, no. He's like anything, even topical. I'm like, oh, well, actually I had been into my OB three times in the last like six months because I had been having some uncomfortable to even talk about discharge coming from me that I was not typical, right? And so they had diagnosed it with, as bacterial vaginosis. And back then, this was, I don't know, 20 years ago, uh, bacterial vaginosis to them was a sexu sexually transmitted disease. And so then they, you know, told me, oh, your husband must be cheating on you or you're cheating on him for you to get this, you know, uh, VB. And that was devastating to me. I mean, I was young. I was, you know, for, I was 25 because I'd had my first child. Um, and I knew, I knew my husband was not cheating on me. I knew that in my soul. There's just no way. Like we worked together. We were together all the time. Like we were always with the kids like there's just no way and then they're like well then it must be you like literally then they put it on me when I'm like absolutely it's not him they're like well then who are you sleeping around with basically is was the conversation I was like just so offended and upset by that but anyway so that was you know six over the six months prior to this incident in the ER and, and now the ICU but they gave me um, a cream which took care of it went away well then it came back and then they gave it to me again and then it came back. So they gave it to me a third time. Um, and so then I told this internist in the ICU that. And I'm like, oh, yeah, well, I've had this bacterial vaginosis. And so they gave me this cream. And he's like, do you have, he's like, do you, he started asking me all these other questions. And one of them was, do you have an IUD? I'm like, yeah, I have an IUD. He's like, it's coming out. And literally, like, in five minutes, he had it out. And, and I was in toxic shock from my IUD, which at that time, they didn't know IUDs could potentially cause toxic shock. 
Um, thank goodness for the smart uh, internist in the ICU. Uh, my OB, they called him. My OB and I were friends. Again, like I worked with these guys, right? I worked in surgery with them. I worked with my OB. He, he was my good friend. He delivered my daughter. So they had called him and told him like what was going on. And he was there immediately. Like literally they had, you know, were just cleaning up from getting me all situated. <laughs> And he comes in and he's like, there's no way, there's no way that IUD caused toxic shock, you know, cause there was no documentation on it back then. And, but he's, he's terrified and feeling horribly guilty thinking that he had potentially contaminated the IUD as he inserted it, causing it to have bacteria or something on it, which caused me to have the infection. Right. And so he's feeling guilty thinking it's his fault. So he's literally on the phone with Marina IUD, like what's going on? Do you have any record of toxic shock with these? And at the time it was no, no, no. So that he got the serial number and, you know, so they could do investigate and things like that. And he was, he was really taking this on that it was his fault that he somehow messed up and almost killed me. And, um, so anyhow, now we know, now we know that this can happen. This toxic shock can happen from IUDs, but toxic shock, if you uh, look that up is extremely deadly and it's extremely fast acting. And if you don't get help immediately, you will die, which is what was going on with me. And thank, thank God for some, um, intelligent, uh, inspired doctors, right? Because, you know, had they taken me to surgery, had that uh, internist not not asked me the exact questions that triggered my response to get to the IUD, like I could very well not be here, right? Um, yeah, but that was that was really at this moment. I'm like the really the first near death experience that I I can recall. Um, and yeah, I've had many more since then, but this one like took most of our episodes. So, so I think I guess I, I will save those for another time, but, um, that was kind of my first, you know, I really, really, really being a nurse, especially too, you know, I fully have faith in Western medicine, right? Western medicine's always going to have the answers in my mind doctors were looked at as gods. They still, a lot of them have a God complex. Um, they think they know everything that because they're taught a lot in med school, right? And they're taught like, Hey, like if you have this, then this is the result. If you have this, then this is the result. And, um, and they just believe w as far as they know. So I'll just touch on, cause we don't have time left, but I will touch on, um, one of my other, almost dying experiences. I was in a cortisol crisis and had zero cortisol in my body for nine days documented. If you have zero cortisol, you're, you die. You have 24 hours at best. And I went nine days with no cortisol and was fighting for my life and going back to the doctors, going back to the ER, letting them know I'm dying. Like I knew I was dying. I'm the only reason I was alive was because of my spirit. And, um, but they were, they, they couldn't find it. Right. And so Anyway, I'll share that whole story later, but the end result with, with that one was doctors were taught that if you have a cortisol crisis and cortisol insufficiency, which eventually I was diagnosed with after everything I went through, that you would need to be on steroids the rest of your life. And I'm not on steroids. 
But that was a battle, too, with fighting for my life after that. I mean, steroids did save my life. I absolutely needed them to save my life at that time. Um, but they were they had told me had I not stayed on them, like I would die. I needed them every day, three times a day for the rest of my life. And at that point, I was happy with that. But my body did not agree with that. And so um, so I was able to wean off and and uh, then doctors were like, you're an anomaly. We need to study you like there's no way you should be alive. Like they have all this documentation that I should be dead on so many levels. So so then we need to study you. I'm like, no, there's the human body's made to heal itself as long as we allow it to. And so these process, these experiences I went through are what led me to looking outside of Western medicine. What else is out there? Because I, I, according to Western medicine, I should be dead multiple times over. I shouldn't be sitting here talking to you, but here I am. So what else is it? And that's where energy work and frequency work and everything else has come into my life and how and why I believe in it so much. And I've seen it help multiple people, multiple people, including myself on all levels, you know, from from something small and minor to something huge. And it's just so powerful. And it's it's the way of true healing true healing and not just life or death saving you your life which western medicine is very good at life and death saving but not long-term health so yeah, yeah. thank you for sharing your story with us. <laughs> you're welcome that time went by really fast holy crap Thank you for joining us on this path of self-discovery and soul connection. Remember, the journey doesn't end here. For more inspiration and resources, join our Facebook group, Igniting Soul Connection. Also, visit us at FindingTheFire.com or follow us on TikTok and Instagram at FindingTheFire. Until next time, keep the fire alive. This has been a production from a podcast studio.